I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Anti-Semitism has been with us for centuries. One of the great and wonderful aspects of America is that we have been a historically free country, not much overt anti-Semitism. Jews have always felt like we belong here. We are free here. We are respected here. Well, since Donald Trump became president, all that has changed. As with other forms of racism, and fueling the flames of fear and hatred of the other, this president reached into the old bag of familiar buzzwords to increase anti-Semitism in America. And as a proud, patriotic Jewish American, I never thought I'd see the day. Truly never thought I'd see the day. But here it is. In the summer of 2019, President Trump said, In my opinion, if you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Israel and you're being very disloyal to Jewish people. Our guest on this part of Keeping Democracy Live, Mark Bellow, writes in The Hill, I am loyal to the Constitution and the office, not to this president. Mark says, disagreeing with the current administration in Israel or the United States on policy does not make a Jewish American disloyal. It makes them American. Mark Bellow adds, This is another attempt to politicize anti-Semitism. The president proves you can support Israel, yet be anti-Semitic. Well, thanks for being with us, Mark Bellow. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mark Bellow is an attorney, civil justice advocate, and award-winning author of the Zachary Blake legal thriller series, one of the first to sue the Catholic Church over sexual abuse, Bellow draws upon 42 years of courtroom experience and a passion for justice to write novels and commentaries. Well, thanks again. Let's start by looking at the controversial words the president used. Again, he said, in my opinion, if you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Israel and you're being very disloyal to Jewish people. Do you see method in his madness? You know, I'm laughing, but it's not funny. Um, I see a message in all of his madness. Uh, Jews are just the latest victims of his rhetoric. Um, You know, it's funny. I've written six books. None of them are... uh, Zachary Blake is is, uh, my main character, and he is Jewish. Uh, But... The victims in my books, his clients, uh, have not yet been Jewish. I've I've defended essentially in in my books various ethnic groups, and I think it's a slippery slope if you're a member of my of a minority to support the kinds of things he does and says uh, when your minority might be next. That's true. And, 
and that's kind of the problem I have. Uh, his attacks on Jews, if you look at, at this veiled attack, are not as blunt right. or um, direct as his attacks, let's say, on Muslims or or his rhetoric about African Americans. Uh, I remember one speech where he he turned to the audience and said, "Where's my African American?" Like there's one guy in the crowd that <laughs> that uh, is his guy. Yeah. Um, that's offensive, even though it might not have been intended by him to be offensive. So I, I, I the guy, the guy just has problems with anybody who isn't white and Christian, and that's my biggest problem with him. Yeah, it is a big problem. Again, I never thought I'd see the day. What about this charge of disloyalty and dual loyalty? What history is there behind those specific words? Well, I don't think you. I don't think you. You are disloyal to America if you're a Jewish pro-Israel citizen um, of America. I don't. I don't support. Everything Israel does, but I'm a huge supporter of Israel. Uh, likewise, I don't support everything America does, but I'm a huge supporter of America. As an American Jew, loyal to America, but very supportive of Israel, and someone who uh, Trump, uh, someone who votes Democratic, typically, I'm not clear where Trump believes my loyalties lie. Um, well, there's... You know, in history, yeah. this disloyalty claim is nothing new. Tell us about American that. Jews have always been accused of some sort of dual loyalty or disloyalty because of their support for Israel. In this instance, though, there's an added insult, and that is that the president thinks we're stupid. <laughs> yeah, he. we're all stupid. He's the smart one, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and but you know even in in Europe before the Second World War, I believe uh, the 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 charge of disloyalty to the nation state came up with regard to the Jewish people. So it has a long history. Well, you know, again, if you're if you're if you're supportive of Israel and you're an American, you must you must be somebody who is uh, disloyal to America or or. Israel first to use Trump's rhetoric. Yeah. That's that's uh, it goes against so much history. I mean over the past yep. 100 years uh, ever since well not 100 years 71 years since uh, Israel has been a state uh Israel has always been our staunchest ally. We've always been their staunchest ally. Yep. And to somehow switch that now uh, it's amazing how he can get away with it. How? Look at you. Look at uh, at what started this, and what started this was some alleged anti-Semitic comments by two freshman congressmen. Um, and you know, I don't know where you stand on on Omar and Talib. Uh, I'm not a fan. I understand. Uh, candidly, yeah. Um, they vocally they vocally advocate for polit- uh, Palestinian interests that are hostile to Israeli policies. As a Jew, while I'm not in lockstep with them, I certainly support, typically, Israel's policies. As an American, though, 
and this is important, I support the First Amendment. Oh, imagine and, that. And Omar and Tlaib have a right to speak for their beliefs. Uh, are they anti-Semitic? Or are they, you know, two of the voices in American democracy who question the way their own brethren are being treated? Uh, that's the question. Uh, they have a right to say what they want to say. We have a right to vote them out of office, just like we do Trump. Sure. Right. Um, but this nonsense that these two people represent the Democratic Party, uh, to quote Trump, I think he said something like, where is the Democratic Party gone? They're defending these two people over the state of Israel. Um, nonsense. That's just nonsense. Uh, it, it, it certainly is. And the First Amendment, as you know, is there to defend uh, offensive language. It's not there Absolutely. to defend... Not, 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 not tremendously offensive. <laughs> hate speech. Well, I, I don't think they've crossed the line into hate speech. Yet. No. Gosh, no. Not at all. Now, it's it does seem uh, Trump's game plan for 2020 is to divide and conquer. And as you point out, this president is trying to, quote, make support for Israel a political wedge issue ahead of the 2020 election. Now, this strategy is not already without results. For example, such an approach works very well with the religious right, his rock-solid base. For them, Israel is not merely a nation-state. It's a religious icon. It's the staging area for the rapture, when good people will be risen to heaven and everyone else will suffer in eternal damnation. I don't think that a majority of Americans go along with that. I I really don't think so. But many of his wedge strategies have worked in his favor. For example, immigration of people of color from South and Central America. It will increase anti-Semitism and already has. But what about it as an electoral tool? How, uh, how effective is this divide and conquer uh, as it goes forward, do you think? Well, the, 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 the issue is uh, the soul of America, for lack of a better way to say this. Uh, if you look at the 2016 campaign, um, Trump started the campaign by arguing that Mexico was not sending their best people, they were sending murderers and rapists. Then he declared that, that uh, uh, six Muslim countries, I believe it was, mm-hmm. uh, were terrorist states and and attempted to issue a Muslim ban. And his rhetoric was directed almost exclusively to people of color uh, from uh, other countries, let's say. The other. And, uh-huh. and uh, you know, you mentioned my, my, my novel, Betrayal of Faith, about, about the uh, Catholic clergy and, and uh, the stories of, uh, of abuse of children. But my second novel, uh, a novel called Betrayal of Justice, was written during that campaign. And uh, what I was concerned about was this issue of picking on minorities, uh, trying to ban uh, Hispanics and Muslims, and saying things about minorities in general, especially minorities of color, um, that uh, are offensive, and should be offensive, by the way, to any (laughs) minority citizen. Uh, I'm white. Uh, I'm Jewish. It, I don't wear it on my face like a, a, a Muslim does or a, or a, 
uh, an African American does, or even a, even uh, uh, to some uh, the way Hispanics do. Mm-hmm. But uh, I find I find it offensive um, on their behalf. Uh, it's just it's just not American, and that's the problem I have. And there's that I can't remember the the poem in specific, but there was some. I think a clergy member in Germany saying when they came for the unions, I didn't care because I wasn't a union member. When they came for yep. the communists, yep, yep. I didn't care because I was not a communist, et cetera, et cetera. And when that they came for the, me... That it, is the foreword, by the way, in, my, in Betrayal of Justice. Ah, imagine that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is called Keeping... Funny that you, it's funny that you brought that up. Well, that's funny. It is. It's interesting. I mean, because that's what we're talking about here. Well, this show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, our guest today is a group effort, folks. Our guest def- uh, today is Mark Bellow, an attorney, civil justice advocate. Uh, and uh, we're talking about Trump and Jewish Americans and his divide and conquer strategy and how he's blasted and, and said, how can any Jew vote for a Democrat? He's, he's really saying that. And as you point out, historically, Jews have overwhelmingly voted for Democratic candidates and that 72 percent of Jews voted for Trump's Democratic rival, Hillary Clinton, in 2016. No question. Why, why is that? Why do Jews vote overwhelmingly Democratic? What issues move us and keep us in that direction? Well, I, I, have, I would have to say all. <laughs> uh, um, the, on, the only um, reason... I, I can't speak for other Jews. Uh, you know, it's, no, sure. It, it, um, yeah. I presume with a last name like Cohen, uh, I'm, t- I'm, talking to, <laughs> I'm talking to a fellow Jewish person, but... but You're brilliant. You're right. <laughs> um, and, and I hate to use the, the, the financial stereotype here, but there is there are some issues uh, in the economic world that a wealthy Jewish person might embrace uh, in the Republican doctrine. Uh-huh. Uh, outside of that, I don't see any reason why a social justice oriented Jewish person, and we tend to be uh, uh, socially justice oriented, yes. um, would would vote for people who uh, espouse these kinds of doctrines. And, and you know, the, the, the biggest issue in all of this over the last three years has been the silence of the Republican Party oh, yes. uh, I- I- involving yeah. all of these issues. I, I, would, I would be much uh, less concerned about these things if somebody, uh, other than Congressman Amash, uh, spoke in protest of the kinds of stuff that comes out of his mouth. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing that we haven't discussed is white supremacy, which is a, um, a, a byproduct of this stuff we're talking about. Oh, absolutely. And if you think about the history of this country, the only thing that came close to bringing down our democracy was white supremacy. Uh, that's an interesting point. That's a very interesting point. Huh. So he, yeah, he's, uh, I've seen many different ways, at least from my opinion, that uh, democracy is under attack. He has clearly no respect for uh, the law. He thinks he is the law himself there. And there has been, you know, it'd be one thing if it were just Trump, but there has been this 
undercurrent, you know, like kept in the sewers for a long time, uh, this white supremacist stuff. And you're right. That's what nearly destroyed our democracy last time. Uh, and, you know, Trump and his loyal followers, they want to reduce they want to reduce the numbers of Jewish people voting for Democrats. What do you think the prospects are in this regard? How effective has it been? And I, I will say that I agree with you that I think one thing about Jewish identity, Israel or not, has been we've been there in the civil rights movement. We care about justice. That's part of our identity. But what do you think the prospects for a success of this uh, reducing you know, the 72 percent of Jews that voted for uh, Hillary Clinton are? Is it, is it working, do you think? I have no sense. I, it, it, that's hard to answer. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we'll know a lot more after 2020. Um, my sense is that um, pre-Trump, uh, there was some success. If you go to an APAC convention, yeah. uh, you'll see a lot of... of Republicans. Uh, I don't want to say right-wing, yeah. but I would say right-leaning yeah. uh, people. Again based mainly on uh, Christianity's embracing, I was going to say embracement, I don't think that's a word, (laughs) embracing of the uh, state of Israel as uh, a a state that would protect uh, Christian values in uh, the Holy Land versus uh, allowing Israel to be defeated by its territorial enemies, which would uh, essentially uh, end the Holy Land as a, a quote, Christian, unquote, uh, yeah, safe a free area. Christian place to visit. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Christians are, are much better off if the, the land stays in Jewish control, clearly. Yeah. So there's that aspect. And then again, there's the financial aspect. They, they, uh, wealthy Jews tend to believe, rightly or wrongly, that um, the Republicans will protect their money better than Democrats will. Oh yeah. Well, when you consider that, uh, you know, greed is a uh, uh, doesn't discriminate based on race or ethnic background. You know, it's about greed. There's lots of, I mean, you know, the wealthiest people, I think. But it is a, it is it is a stereotype. Oh, it is a stereotype. No question about it. And that's why I'm reluctant to, to yeah. mention it. But but it's it's true. Well. The the other the other point, if you think about this, um, and, and this is what I'm talking about when I say, how can the Republicans stay silent? Yes. Is look at what's happening. Uh, is Trump protecting their money? No. He spends more money than Democrats do. That's the only for difference sure. is he spends it on ridiculous stuff like a wall. <laughs> Rather than a social program, really, which is really could really build national security, but but you're right, and you know I I know a lot of uh, fellow Jewish Democrats, and yes, I am a Jewish Democrat, who are really really focused on Israel, and you know I, I wonder, you know, it seems like Trump and maybe some of the other Republicans really see uh, American or Jewish Americans as single-issue voters, that Israel is all that matters. Nonsense. Tell me about that. that it's nonsense. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm an American. I, I, I support programs that benefit Americans. Uh, do I coincidentally support 
um, American support of Israel? Sure, I do. I, I'm I'm as pro-Israel as the next guy, but I'm an American. And if if you said to me, uh, feed the hungry, and the question was, do you feed the hungry in Israel or do you feed the hungry in America? Yeah, well, <laughs> the 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 answer would be feed the hungry in America. Of course, absolutely. Um, there, there's a there's a uh, from a social standpoint, uh, I, I would argue that the president's rhetoric about America first uh, might be true. Having said that, if you asked me would I support a tax, let's say, that lifted uh, people out of homelessness, mm-hmm. whether it be here or around the world, the answer would be yes. Uh you talked about greed, and, and yeah. I, I want to add the word selfishness. Yes. You know, we tend to live in our little bubbles and uh, go home to our suburban households and and uh, enjoy our lifestyles uh, when there are people suffering, and and yes. somebody somebody raises the issue of uh, let's say let's say the issue is Medicare for all. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know how you pay for Medicare for all. Well, you got to uh, I'm not smart enough to to know that, but if you can, I think it's a worthy endeavor. Touch. I don't think people should walk into a hospital and be denied insulin, right? Because they can't afford it. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, your, I... alter, your alternative is death. This is the this is America. Yeah. So I I, I just uh, that's the problem I have. I I, I don't think we think about those. Uh, like we used to, uh, those yeah. who are less fortunate than us in this country. Well, and it, I, I mean, well, I would argue. Jewish it, or whether we're not Jewish, right? It benefits all of us, I think, to have you know to increase the common good and not have desperate people. It serves yep. all of us, I think. And uh, you know, we're Chuck, all in this together. Chuck Schumer has said that Trump is wittingly or unwittingly encouraging the rise of anti-Semitism. I mean, after the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre. Uh, the tr- the president uh, condemned that. Uh, he argues that he's not racist nor anti-Jewish. In your opinion, is it possible that Trump is not anti-Semitic? No. <laughs> How do you really feel? <laughs> it seems pretty it's not possible. No. And, and and again, he may you know uh, <laughs> you and I you and I are very familiar with the term some of my best friends. Right. I I don't That's doubt exactly. That he that he doesn't think right. he's anti-Semitic. Well, he doesn't think he's racist. I, I don't. I believe he believes that he's pro-Jewish. But uh, to me, again, to bring to bring it back to to my statement about my second book, um, it doesn't take a giant leap to go from one minority to another. Yes, for sure. And when someone when someone shows you, uh, Mar- the guy's name is Martin. Uh, I, I can't think of the, the gentleman's name that you were that you were referring to his quote. Yeah. When they came when they came for uh, for me, right. there was no one left to, <laughs> to defend me. Yeah. Um, it, it it isn't a it isn't a gigantic leap that if he doesn't like this group and he doesn't like that group and he doesn't like that group. And the only group he likes are white Christians. Mm-hmm. That he's anti-Semitic. Yeah, so it seems that's not, that's not a that's not a huge leap. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it does seem like he 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 has to be. Now, certainly, 
Jews have a long history of support for refugees, quite understandable, because we've been refugees ourselves. Many Jewish organizations such as HIAS, H-I-A-S, are right there in the trenches now fighting for immigrant justice. I wonder if right-wingers seize on this tradition of immigrant justice to enhance arguments against uh, Jewish Americans. Your thoughts? It's like we want, you know, we're for immigrants. At, at, you know, I, I, think, I think we're, uh, and I'm speaking for Jews now. Sure. I think we're somewhat past that. I, I don't think we, you, you see this, uh, this level of immigration uh, relative to the Jewish population. There's hardly any Jews outside of Israel and America these days. Uh, so I, I'm going to offend somebody, I guess. Uh, but I traveled through Europe, and we visited all of the uh, old um, uh, Jewish uh, sections and, and populations in Eastern Europe, for instance, are limited to three to 10,000 Jews in every, in every uh, country I visited. Mm. Um, mm. So uh, the, the vast majority of the Jewish population lives in Canada, Israel, and the United States. Um, so we don't, we don't face that problem like we used to. But can you imagine if World War II was now, and mm. thousands of Jews were trying to escape the Nazis now, what they would be met with? Uh, Roosevelt was not tremendously receptive no. to Jewish immigration back in the 40s. But can you imagine what it would be like now? Wow, is that chilling? Oh my God! Wow, yeah, because we can be seen as the other, and Trump loves to uh, raise uh, fear and hatred of the other. So I just, I just look at this from the from a lens of a Holocaust survivor, and I say to myself, take a a Mexican immigrant, take a uh, a Guatemalan, right who travels through Mexico to get to the United States, comes to the border and gets thrown in a cage? Yeah. It's sort of like the Japanese during World War II. Yep. Uh, that's not a, a, a badge of honor for us. <laughs> no. Uh, instead of building walls, we ought to be building bridges. And, and now, do I, do I support uh, unlimited... No, of course not. ...unfettered immigration? No. Or do I support but that's not violations the of the law? No. But I certainly don't support separating families and putting them in cages. No, of course not. Well, let me just ask you one final question. Is there evidence, do you sense, that Trump's remarks may be backfiring among Jewish Americans? I hope so. Maybe what? I'm sorry. If, if Trump's remarks might be backfiring against Jewish Ameri- uh, uh, among Jewish Americans, so that his uh, you know, divide and conquer... I, I, uh, again, this conversation is an example of that. Um, I think I think you're you're speaking of the uh, let's take your seventy percent number. Yeah, it's certainly backfiring against those people. Yeah, let's say that that of the additional thirty percent, fifteen a half of those are on the fence. Okay, let's uh, I, I I believe that the, that hardcore right wing Jewish people uh, on all issues. Uh, I don't think that's a solid thirty percent. So I think. His rhetoric is offensive to a significant majority of that 30% support he has in the Jewish community.
And I, 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 I would bet right now. We'll, we'll have to talk in uh, in December of twenty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would bet that he'll lose the Jewish vote substantially in 2020. Oh, let us hope More so. More than 70%. Let us hope so, if he's still the candidate at the time. I don't know. So if people, thank you for being with us. If people want to read more of your stuff and just uh, get in contact with you, there must be something on that Internet thing. I have a website. It is www.mark, M-A-R-K, M, as in Mark, <laughs> um, Bellow, B-E-L-L-O.com, MarkMBellow.com. All, all four of my books, two to, two to Come, are on the website. They can be bought at Amazon. Um, it is the Zachary Blake Legal Thriller series, if you look for it online. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. And uh, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes after a song relative to uh, dividing us. And we'll be talking about... Uh, is Franco still dead? Whoa, Stay with us. Same tricks they used before. They're trying to divide us, but that'll only multiply us. Whoa, the same tricks they used before. They're trying to divide us, but that'll only multiply us. Separation, intimidation, brainwashing the new generation. They use violence. Hope it, uh, I believe it will multiply us, trying to divide us. Well, who is old enough to remember 1975? <laughs> Easy. Uh, when Saturday Night Live started back in 1975, the Spanish dictator Francisco Franco had finally died after 40 brutal years in power. Common on Weekend Update was the news that Franco is still dead, as if everyone needed to be reminded that his remarkably long, bloody, and repressive, implacable regime really was over. But as we approach 2020, the question once again is, is Francoism dead? Is democracy solid in a post-Franco Spain? A measure of that actually resides in the status of the corpse of the dictator. What? How can the stability of democracy in Spain have anything to do with the long-dead guy? With us to dissect, perhaps not the best word, the rather huge and highly significant news surrounding the status of Franco's body is Sebastian Faber. Hey, thanks so much for being with us. 
Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Sebastian Faber has a doctorate from the University of California, Davis. He's professor in the Department of Hispanic Studies at Oberlin College. Sebastian is the author of Exile in Cultural Hegemony, Spanish Exiles in Mexico, Anglo-American Hispanists, and the Spanish Civil War, and Memory Battles of the Spanish Civil War. He regularly writes for The Nation, La Maria, Frontera, uh, Fronterdad and CTXT Contexto y Acción. A former chair of the Board of Governors of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade Archives, where I served with him for many years, he co-edits together with Peter Carroll uh, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade uh, Archives quarterly magazine, The Volunteer. Well, historical memory is highly important for a country's identity and future. In this case, it has a major impact on the survival of Spain's relatively new democracy. How Generalismo Franco is remembered today is a thunderstorm of high controversy at this moment across Spain. Well, Sebastian, where is the body of Franco now? And what? tell us about the unanimous ruling Spain's Supreme Court just handed down with regard to Franco's body. Well, Bert, um Franco's body is still currently interred or where it was buried um, soon after he died in 1975, which is in the Valley of the Fallen. The Valley of the Fallen is a large monument about an hour outside of Madrid that Franco had built over about 20 years' time uh, with the help of um, forced labor by um, prisoners from the Civil War, Republican prisoners. And that uh, monument, officially to the fallen, um, in, in the Civil War, was inaugurated in 1959, and centrally buried in it at that time, or, or soon after its inauguration, was the body of the founder of the Spanish fascist party, José Antonio Primo de Rivera. Now, when Franco died in November 75, it was decided that he should also be buried centrally in that um, monument, which is really kind of a, a large basilica hewn into live rock on top of um, Interlife Mountain, basically, and on top of which is a sta- stands a huge concrete cross. And Franco's body has been in there, in in the middle of that big space, uh, ever since he died. And um, it continues to be something of a site of pilgrimage for those nostalgic of his regime. Traditionally, every 20th of November, which was the anniversary of both, both his death and that of José Antonio, um, Francoists or neo-Francoists would come to the Valley of the Fallen and, and celebrate um, Franco and his regime. Um, they still do so, even though it's officially now forbidden by law. Now, the, um, the decision by the Spanish Supreme Court was to uh, allow a government decision to go ahead to move his body to another location. The government, the social, current socialist government of Madrid, made this decision last year, that it was about time to um, move the body of the dictator because what advanced democracy has a huge monument with the body of a former dictator right in the middle of it. Um, But the Franco family uh, opposed that measure, um, claimed they didn't want the body of their their family member, Franco, moved. So it went through the courts, ended up on the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court unanimously decided that it's fine to move the body. So it'll be moved to another location that hopefully is less um, attracts less attention. So symbolically, it's a very important uh, measure, this, and, and reaction in Spain were appropriately 
strong, um, strongly in favor uh-huh. for most of the country and most of the left. The center, center-right um, said, well, you know what, we don't care that much about the past. Uh, either way, whatever. Oh. Oh, and the extreme right was indignant and said, this is a desecration of a tomb. This can't happen. So it's um, it's been a it's been a big deal in Spain. It's been a symbolically a, 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 an important decision. Could this have the effect of of uh, gathering strength for the extreme right, the uh, the the Vox Party? Uh, could it be something that unites them and, and fires them up? I kind of doubt it. Um, just for your listeners' sake, uh, Vox V O X mm-hmm. is, is a relatively new party on the um, extreme right. Of the political spectrum, uh, it's only uh, five or six years old, and it's only gained parliamentary representation in the in the national parliaments in Madrid uh, last year. So it's a it's a fairly new party. Um, in the polls currently, they stand to lose a little bit of the seats that they won. Um, Spain is moving toward yet um, new parliamentary elections, the fourth yeah. parliamentary elections in four years. Those will happen in November, and I, I don't think um, this particular decision will do much to rally their base. Oh, that sounds good. I'm, I'm glad for that. So wh- what is the plan to do with uh, the body of the former dictator? Where, what cemetery or where are they going to put it? He's going to be moved to a, a family plot, which it's still actually still a public space, but much less prominent. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so it's 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 for sure a demotion in terms of symbology. Um, at, at one point in in the midst of this controversy, the family said, "All right, if you want to move the body, then where we want it buried is in in a in a cathedral in the biggest cathedral in Madrid." Yeah. Um, and this would, of course, be defeating the purpose altogether because that it's an even an easier spot to visit for either tourists or 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 um, those nostalgic or Franco. So, fortunately, that measure was um not allowed for ultimately for security reasons it was not it was deemed not not a valid place, not a, a an appropriate place to rebury him but um but another what what the um what this decision and and these the, the final the moving of the body which hopefully will happen soon yeah um underscores on the one hand is spain's um continuing progress in in dealing with this complicated past of a three-year civil war and an almost 40-year dictatorship that ended in the mid-1970s. On the other hand, it also underscores how much is still to be done, how long the laundry list is of unfinished business when it comes to the legacy of Francoism and the civil war. And I'll just, if, if you allow me, I'll just point out a couple of, of, kind of big issues, items on that list. Yes, please do. Um, if, if we just mentioned the Franco family and its opposition to moving the body. Well, the Franco family um, has an estimated um, estate, an estimated fortune of, that some people put at 600 million euros, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. is about uh, seven or 800 million dollars, yeah. I think, at the current Something exchange like rate. Yeah. This was a fortune amassed by Franco and his family in the course of the Civil War, and especially the dictatorship. And at no point... Um, has that fortune ever been officially investigated, let alone has there been any attempt for the state, the Spanish state, to force the Franco family to return any of that money. 
Um, another big item on that laundry list of unfinished business is the um, tens of thousands of bodies of um, Spaniards killed in the Civil War by the Franco side whose bodies are still strewn through the country in unmarked mass graves, oh, wow. and up to 30,000 of which are actually buried in that same monument where Franco still currently lies and where he's going to be moved from. There, too, the Spanish state has not assumed its responsibility with regard to these people, which are really disappeared people. So yeah. by international um, law and international treaties that Spain has signed, it's always the state's responsibility in cases of forced disappearance, to try to locate the, um, the disappeared, and, and if it turns out they have died and they're in unmarked graves, to identify those graves, to exhume the bodies, to identify the bodies and, ret- and return them to their families. Um, the Spanish state has never assumed that responsibility yet. Uh, and then there's a whole slew of other kind of legacies of Francoism the most prominent of which is the monarchy itself. When Spain became a democracy in the late 1970s, it became a parliamentary monarchy. Mm-hmm. And um, but but the 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 restoration of the monarchy was a measure um, implemented by Franco himself. So Franco had per, the the provision that Franco had made for um, his own death was that after his his death, the grandson of the late last king. Uh, who had left the country in 1931, would be restored to the throne. And he has been, and currently his son, um, Philip VI, is is um, is the head of state officially in Spain. Mm-hmm. But the whole institution of the monarchy was, in fact, instituted um, by Franco. Oh, wow. um, and it's no coincidence that those who um, have doubts about the way to the transition to democracy was uh, managed in Spain tend to have strong Republican sentiments. That is to say, they want Spain to be a, rep- a republic, just like, yes. let's say, France is. Yeah. Um, and it's also no coincidence uh, that, for example, in a region like Catalonia, um, the support for the monarchy and the, hmm. let's say, the, um, the grade on the report card that um, people in Catalonia give to the current king is very, very low. <laughs> Ah, yes. Spain, you know, and and, and I don't know, some people think, oh, why bother with history? It's the past. It is not the past. It is happening right now and for the future. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, Sebastian Faber about uh, the moving, potential moving, likely moving of a dead dictator's body and what that means for democracy in Spain. And Spain has a... uh, uh, a relatively strong democracy right now, whereas uh, much of Europe is is facing, uh, you know, nationalist uh, rise of, of dictatorships, and uh, so democracy in Spain is, uh, it's something that that's very important, I think, in terms of uh, world politics. Now, in terms of uh, well, democracy and government. Now, the the current prime minister of Spain is Pedro Sanchez. What did, who who is he, and what did he say about the ruling of the court that? Uh, he should be taken out of this place of, of honor. It, um, the Socialist Party, which is Pedro Sanchez's party, was thrilled with the decision because it, they had uh, proposed a measure to move the body. It was um, it was their their idea, um, and, and and that idea had the support of 
the active support of the left wing of the Spanish parliament, um, whereas the two major right-wing parties, which are the Popular Party and the Citizens Party, abstained from voting um, in, in that decision. So the Socialist Party was thrilled. Um, to what extent the Socialist Party and the current Prime Minister are willing to address the other unfinished business that I just, of which I just mentioned some, uh-huh. some items, is, um, is, a, is a big question, and we'll see what happens in the elections next month or in November, um, and see how much of um, of the legacy of Francoism uh, these established parties are willing to tackle. Some of these issues are really complicated. Um, just to give you one example, um, one big gripe of the of the memory movement, which is the grassroots movement that has been uh, that was born in Spain about twenty twenty some years ago, yeah. that has really been pushing uh, for the country to address these legacies and. Uh, it's this movement that should be credited with applying so much pressure that the government decided to move Franco's body finally. Uh, but among its gripes is the fact that um, all of the um, uh, jurisprudence, all of the um, judicial, all of the sentences that were issued by Francoist courts uh. um, criminalizing the opposition to the Franco regime um, so these are sentences in which people were condemned to death or long prison sentences, hmm. um, being quote unquote guilty of things like treason or um, or um, disloyalty or um, or um, things like that. Um, all those sentences sti- are still on the books; um, they have never been annulled. So that uh-huh. um, it's it, for family members of. Um, men and women who were imprisoned under Francoism for belonging to a union or for fighting with the Republic during the Civil War. Um, those family members still know that their grandfathers and grandmothers and granduncles and, and great aunts are still officially listed as traitors to the fatherland or as, as criminals. And um, and that's 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 a big deal. Um, honor nice. is a big deal, right? Yeah, yeah. So the fact that these sentences have not been annulled is an important issue. However, annulling the sentences opens up in Pandora's box because that then um, uh, opens the door for these families to maybe sue the Spanish state Uh-oh. and sue for reparations. The um, the law of historical memory that Spain finally that, adopted yeah. twelve years ago in two thousand seven uh-huh. provides for some monetary compensations, the compensation for people who spent time in jail or in concentration camps or in other ways suffered the consequences of, of the Francoist repression, but nothing of the sort of reparations that could come out of a lawsuit. Right? If, you, if you have to spend 15 years in jail, then that's, to translate that into monetary damages is, is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of ways in which the Francoist legacy of Francoism um, forms something like a foundation of the country's current economic structure. So there's, if you look at Spain's corporate and economic elites, a lot of the wealth currently existing in Spain was accumulated, or the basis of it was accumulated during the Franco regime. A lot of infrastructure, uh, even a lot of corporate um, structures and, 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 and um, corporate wealth was accumulated through, for example, the use of forced labor 
um, the the the, the uh, employment of political prisoners. So, for to open that Pandora's box would open uh, the corporate and economic elites, as well as the political elites, up to a whole series of complicated questions that they're not really willing to face and that they would prefer to ignore. Wow. So there's there's all kinds of ways in which dealing with the legacies of Francoism. Um, even for the center-left, is a complicated um, issue that, that that is not necessarily something they're willing to engage in. Yeah, when you're talking about money, I mean, how many thousands of family members are there still who whose uh, ancestors, uh, you know, as you say, were, were punished in jail or, or killed? Uh, that's... Right. Wow, that's that's a tough, tough. And and, and and I mean, you you talked about the the, the rise of these um, of the extreme right in Europe and yeah. these questions being historical memory questions still being quite relevant to the present to the political present. Of course, we have to say that the same is true in the United States. So, the discussion about what to do with Confederate statues in the South, mm-hmm. uh, the question of reparations for yes. slavery, mm-hmm. are really not all that different from the questions that Spain is facing, right? And and. Um, just like in Spain, the, the political establishment, even on the left, is often quite hesitant to go in that direction, right? Because it complicates things tremendously. Um, and um, and it's true that the American Civil War and the American uh, and, and, and and slavery in the South um, happened longer ago yeah. than the Franco regime, which which really was in power between 1939 and 1975. But the questions are really, in broad strokes, very similar. And um, there, there's plenty of ways in which um, countries can learn from each other in these issues, right? And there's plenty of ways in which um, even those of us who, who want countries to engage with these issues can benefit by uh, connecting them across borders. So there's interesting ways in which um, Spain's... Um, the question in, one of the questions in Spain is how can Spain as a country come to terms with the past through the use of public spaces, through organization of a museum, through um, education in public um, high schools, let's say, right? Well, those are also issues that the United States continues to grapple with. If you think of Brian Stevenson's yes. um, project in Montgomery, Alabama, the Equal Justice Initiative, their memorial to lynching, and the history of, oh, of really slavery, so. yes. uh, the legacy of slavery. Um, the, the, Brian Stevenson has said that he is clearly inspired by, for example, what Germany has tried to do with its complicated Second World War past. And in turn, a country like Spain can look to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and say, well, this is one way that you can organize in a, in a, in a very pedagogically productive way a public space that teaches visitors how to think about these complicated questions of guilt and complicity and the legacy of the past and um, economic consequences and psychological consequences and demographic consequences. Just like in the South, the South, the, the legacy of lynching, lynching mm-hmm. implied huge uh, demographic um, displacements from the South to the North, right, to the urban centers, to Chicago sure. and, and to Cleveland. Similarly, in Spain, the Franco regime caused the displacement of tens of thousands of 
of Spanish Republicans who ended up in Mexico and the United States and France as exiles. So there's all kinds of interesting ways in which these connect, which doesn't mean that they're not politically uncomplicated issues and, mm-hmm. and don't lead to very uh, difficult discussions that often don't have a, an easy resolution. On the other hand, you can say, well, just engaging in the discussion yes. is valuable in and of itself. Well, it is. And, and you know, I mean, history is, of course, written by the victors. And, you know, the, the victor was uh, the fascist Franco. And now those days are gone. So who writes it now? And, and as we've seen so often, what's crucial uh, for many uh, powerful interests is the erasure of uncomfortable history. It's, it's essential to erase that stuff in history that, that is not comfortable. And trying to you know, bring this to the fore now, I can imagine there would be a lot of people saying, oh, let's just forget it. It's too painful. It's too complicated. But it's really important to, to face history and, and face ourselves and, and go forward. And it's, uh, you, know, you, you can't leave it behind. It's not even behind us. So how this uh, election... Is, is coming up in November. How, what part do you think this current uh, controversy uh, will play itself out in that election? Or is it not, uh, how big of a deal is it? Honestly, I don't think it will be that big of a deal in this election, That's just good. because the other issues at play are so important. Uh, Spain continues to face yeah, the economy. Uh, high levels of, of social inequality, um, uh, high levels on, of unemployment. Um, the question of Catalonia is oh, um, at the forefront of everybody's minds. It looks like that same Supreme Court that made the decision that Frank's body, another section of it, but the same court, will, um, in the next week or two, will come down with a sentencing of the Catalan politicians and activists that have been imprisoned ever since the, the, the uh, referendum for, self, for independence two Whoa. years ago. That's a big one. And uh, that sentence is, is, according to analysts, expected to be very heavy. Um, they're talking about sentence up to 10 or 20 years in prison for oh some of these politicians. And that is going to be so, uh, is going to have such an impact in, on, on, on the way that uh, Catalonia thinks of itself within this structure of the Spanish state and of the, mm. that the Spanish state sees Catalonia that I, I think in the elections, um, right. this particular issue of, of Franco's body is not going to be very prominent. Another important question in Spanish, Spanish politics today, as in the rest of Europe, is what do you do when Parliament is so fragmented that the only viable uh, majority, that, that you can only form a parliamentary majority by, uh-huh. through coalitions of different parties? Spain has not been used to that structure, Spain, uh-huh. since it became an in the 70s, has for a long time had um, close to or absolute majorities of one party in parliament, so it's basically oh. party government, huh. unlike other countries. Like I'm, I'm from the Netherlands, and there we've always had coalitions, so we're used to that. In Spain, it's, it's a newer idea that there's so many parties in parliament that each have a share of the pie that the only way to for any government to actually be viable and to have a majority in the parliament is to m- merge or to have different parties join together in the government. Right. Well, the negotiations for that have be, have proven incredibly complicated, almost impossible. And it's very much the question whether 
the, election, the elections in November will yield any different results or will make that those coalition negotiations any easier. The problem is that as long as there's no coalition um, that is viable, the country, in effect, doesn't really have an, a viable government. <laughs> and so all these urgent tasks that remain to be addressed that have to do with unemployment and with the environment and with Catalonia and with um, social justice and uh, creation of employment, all those things continue to be in the back burner because there's no actual legitimate active government to uh, deal with them. Oh, my goodness. Well, that may be (laughs) better than some uh, dictatorial government. But the question of you know, what to do with, with uh, Franco's body and the memory, the memory of Franco, I would think is, you know, it's important to, to perhaps bury fascism. That would be a nice thing to do. I don't know how possible that may be. And, but I, I would think what we're talking about here is taking a step to uh, put fascism in a different place in, in Spain's identity right now or a, a better place. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Sebastian Faber. It's always interesting. And, uh, of course, uh, keeping those uh, 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 Catalonian leaders in jail for a long time would create martyrs, and we know how that works in, uh, in politics as well. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Bert. It's great to be with you. An old Spanish freedom song. Viva la quinta brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la, viva la quinta brigada, rumba la rumba la rumba la, que nos cubrirá de glorias, ay Carmela, ay Carmela, que nos cubrirá de glorias, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. Luchamos contra los moros, rumba la rumba la rumba la, luchamos contra los moros, rumba la rumba la rumba la, mercenarios y fascistas, ay Carmela, ay Carmela, mercenarios y fascistas, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. El ejército del Ebro, rumba la rumba la rumba la la otra noche el río cruzó, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. La otra noche el río cruzó, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. Ya las fuerzas invasoras, rumba la rumba la rumba la ya las fuerzas invasoras, Buena paliza le dio, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. Buena paliza le dio, ay Carmela, ay Carmela. 